When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Burden of Command podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Timothy Clark. Uh, Dr. Clark is founder and CEO of Leader Factor, a consulting, coaching, and training organization. He is an international authority in the fields of psychological safety and innovation, large-scale change and transformation, and senior leadership development. He is a highly sought-after advisor, coach, and facilitator. Dr. Clark has personally coached over 100 CEOs and executives and trained many senior teams around the world. Some of his clients, I'm just going to name a few here, include uh, Accenture, Amazon, American Express, the Department of Treasury, Idaho National Laboratory, Honeywell, Intel, uh, Lockheed Martin, Microsoft, and NASA. Dr. Clark earned his Ph.D. in social science from Oxford University and was both a British research scholar and a Fulbright scholar at Seoul National University in Korea. He earned a master's degree in government and economics from the University of Utah. As an undergraduate at Brigham Young University, he was named first-team academic All-American football player, where he completed a triple degree cum laude. On top of all of that, he is an accomplished author, having written a few books, But the book we're going to focus on today is titled The Four Stages of Psychological Safety, Defining the Path to Inclusion and Innovation. Dr. Clark, thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure, Earl. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, it's. uh, I think this is going to be a really, really great discussion. Uh, Having read through the book, uh, uh, I think the listeners are really going to enjoy this. Uh, But to get going, I'm going to start you off where I start off all of my guests. What does the phrase burden of command mean to you? Burden of command. It makes me think about the natural progression of leadership. So here's the way that we conceive of leadership. The natural progression goes from this first domain is to lead yourself. The second domain is to lead your team. And the third domain is to lead the organization. There's a natural progression there. If you can't lead yourself, then you really have no business leading a team. And you really need to demonstrate the ability to lead a team before you can then become scalable as a leader. Scalable means that you're able to multiply your influence and impact on a a broader scale. So the burden of command to me means that you follow that progression and that you are able to be successful in whatever your stewardship is. And and so I think the second thing that it means, or let me just take a, another minute. By all means. The second thing that it means is that you do not allow the organization to carry you along. And what I mean by that is in terms of developing into a a better leader, you take primary responsibility 
for that development. What that means is that you become an aggressive, self-directed learner. You personally identify your skill and competency gaps, and then you take action to close those gaps. The reason that I emphasize that so much <clears throat> is because I see so many leaders who they, they're on what I call education welfare. They're waiting for, they, they, they rely on the machinery of an organization to carry them along. And that's just not the model for a person that is going to really assume that burden of command. If, if you're going to assume that burden of command, that means that you're going to take the initiative to acquire the skills and gain the competency that you need. And, and so uh, well, let me let me let me make a, a related point. Okay. When I was at Oxford, I had a world famous professor that made a statement that I will never forget. I've tried to live by this statement ever since. He said, the most important thing that you can learn in school is how to learn when you get out of school. Mm. And I have found that to be true. So, so in, in school, right, we have the structure and the systems and the accountability. Right. Right. We have a, our teacher and we have our assignments and we, we're being carried along. We're being nur nurtured and, and that's great, but that's not going to define the rest of your life. The rest of your life, you're going to get, you're going to be outside of a structured learning environment and you're going to rely on informal learning. So if, if we want to talk about meeting the burden of command for the rest of your life, then it really is true that you have to rely on your own personal learning disposition and learning habits and being aggressive and self-directed. So that's a long answer to your question. And I could go on, but I think those are a few things that for me define what the burden of command really means. Yeah, no, I, I love that answer, especially the last part about uh, learning, because it was actually something that, uh, you know, we were talking in, in the workup here about me being in the Marines. It was something that our, our drill instructors actually taught us in boot camp is, you know, I went to Paris Island and we've got a big arch that says Paris Island where Marines are made. And uh, one of our drill instructors, you know, pointed out that that's kind of a falsehood. He said, we we, we get you to a baseline. He goes, Marines are actually made what we call in the fleet. Uh, and he goes, it's, we're going to give you the basic tools. What's going to make you into a good or bad Marine is how you use those tools and excel when you are in the fleet. Hmm. And, and so I really, I really like that answer because it kind of reinforced that idea because, yeah, you know, the, the point that they were making, and, and I think it's maybe the, the point that you were getting at there is, you know, it's easy to do all of those things necessary to be a good Marine or a good student when you have somebody kind of looking over your shoulder and, you know, shine your boots, press your, uh, press your camis, do these things, study, do your right. homework. But right. do you carry that discipline with you as you go forward through your career? Yeah, see, that's the whole point. Uh, when you leave boot camp or when you leave school or when you leave a structured environment, all at once, there's this sudden and dramatic loss of structure, process, systems, and accountability. It's gone. Mm -hmm. And so now the whole point is 
what can you do without that scaffolding around you? Scaffolding's gone. Right. So now's the, now's the test. The test isn't. The test is not boot camp. The test is not when you're in school. The test is not even uh, off times when you are surrounded by the support of an institution. The test is, can you? Ha- what can you do without it? Right? Are you self reliant enough as a leader? And in your own development, your personal development pro- progress and process, will you demonstrate a pattern of, of ongoing development and continuous learning? That's really the test, yeah. I think, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, because as soon as, uh, you know, as soon as that, that outside influence goes away, it's all up to you. And, and we would see that play out. Like I remember, uh, you know, in boot camp, uh, the first thing you do when you get there is this initial fitness test, you know, and you got to run a mile and a half and you're supposed to do it in like, uh, it's like 11 minutes or something like that. I can't remember the time now, but before you ship off, your recruiter does a timed run to quote, make sure you're ready. And, you know, a lot of us, we're getting ready to go to boot camp. We're trying to get all the fun times in and we go and we do the run and we're like 13, 14 minutes and, you know, we're feeling terrible about it. And you don't get what this means until you've been there, but they like, don't worry about it. The drill instructor will knock at least three minutes off your time. (laughs) What? And sure enough, you go. And because this, this hulking behemoth of a man in a drill instructor's head is yelling and screaming at you while you're running, you, in a matter of a few days, you take that 13, 14 minutes down to 11 or 12 minutes because he's yelling at you, making you keep going. Right. But you take him away. And that runtime shoots right back up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, that's a really good. That's a really good point. But let, let me let's press this this point a little bit more, Earl, because I think there's a really good example going on right now in the context of this pandemic. Right. That people need to think about. So so here's an example. Million the the largest labor migration perhaps in the history of the world has taken place in the last few weeks where people have gone home to work. Right. Millions of people have gone home to work. So so this has created a very interesting situation where people have left again the structure and the systems and the accountability of a of a work environment, right? Where they were physically co-located. I'm I'm here with my team, I'm here with my boss and and I work and I, and I'm accountable and I have my tasks and I know what I'm supposed to do and I get measured on this and this. Well, millions of people have gone home. And so what does that do? Well, that shifts us in, in a couple of fundamental ways. We are now working in an asynchronous way. So we're not all working together at the same time doing the, the things that we were doing before. So we're, we've gone from synchronous to asynchronous. And the second fundamental shift is that we've gone from a culture and a process that is based on standardization to one that is now based on personalization. People are working from home. They're very autonomous. They, they have, they've shifted from task-based accountability to results-based accountability because there's nobody 
there's nobody around with, you know, in a bathrobe and a flashlight looking over their shoulders just to see how they're doing. Right. So, so the, look at the test that's going on right now. So look at the burden of command for millions of people that are working from home. Some, some are doing it well, some are not doing it well. Right. Right. That's, that's, that's happening right now. Right. <clears throat> well, and, and I liked what you said there about results-based versus uh, task-based. And, you know, it's something that, like, through my life, uh, you know, I, I can always point to these kind of moments where I didn't get it then, but looking back now, it was just this immense pearl of wisdom. And I remember I grew up in northeast Tennessee, and what a lot of people are shocked to find out about northeast Tennessee is is how much produce comes from that area. And in my hometown, uh, we had a gentleman who grew a lot of tomatoes, and he hired migrant workers to come in every summer to pick the fields. Mm-hmm. And they had this system, and it, uh, I always thought it was fascinating, they had this system where the workers would go pick the tomatoes, and it would come to the truck, and they would hand somebody at the truck a bucket, and they would get a token. And at the end of the, the day, they turned in those, or excuse me, at the end of the week, they turned in those tokens, and they got paid so much per token. And I just asked him one day, I was like, why don't they get paid by the hour? Because, you know, I'm, I was 15, my parents signed the early work thing so I could go to work early. Yeah. And, and I had all these questions because I was new to the workforce, and all, all I knew was hourly wage. And he tells me the story about when he first started out, he used to pay hourly wages. And a field would take somewhere between two to three days to get picked. And then when he switched to the tokens, it was a lesson he had picked up from some other farmer. That same field would get picked in a day. And he was talking about how, you know, I didn't, he didn't use these exact words, but what it was, was results based. You know, if you let people work based off of results, it's up to them how much money they make and how much hard work they want to put in. And uh, it was just amazing watching how hard they worked versus the hourly wages. And so I I thought of that immediately when you were talking about it because, yeah, you know, some people now, granted, we're not on that same system. Hmm. But, you know, just imagine, (laughs) just imagine kind of if we were right now, you'd set apart the results-based people who are just out there killing it and, and knocking things out versus the minimum performers, right? That's very true. Yeah, it's very true. That's a really, really good point. The, one of the, 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 the framework that we use when we teach accountability illustrates what your story, Earl, in, in, in very clear terms. So the, the, the basic level of accountability is what we call task accountability. What's a task? A task is a basic unit of work. We, we take all of our work and we divide it up into tasks and we say, you do this and she'll do that and he'll do that and I'll do this. So we have tasks mm-hmm. and most jobs are, are a, a list of tasks. So that's, that's the basic level one of accountability, task level accountability. Can you perform tasks on time and to standard? And then if you do, and you have a demonstrated track record of performance, then generally we say, okay, let's have a graduation ceremony. You need to go to level two. Level two is what we call process. 
or project level accountability. A process is simply a sequence or string of tasks that we put together in a certain order and then we repeat those. So we do the same processes over and over again. But now my accountability is not for a task, but it's for the entire process, a string of tasks. So that takes me to a higher level or a project. A project is a group of tasks with a beginning and an end. So that's processes and projects represent level two mm-hmm. accountability. Okay, so, but we can go higher. So the highest level of accountability we call outcome, outcome level accountability. Outcome level accountability shifts the terms of engagement. This is where the magic happens because, um, for example, at a task level, I can say to my son, Dan, Dan, I want you to cut the grass. He can cut the grass, right? Come back and say, here, Dad, here you go. Here, the grass is cut, and I'll go take a look at it. Okay, great job, Dan. But then I go back to Dan. I say, Dan, I, I not only want you to cut the grass, but I want you to water the grass, fertilize the grass, and now I'm giving, and I want you to do this every week. So now I've given him a process and it repeats Mm. and he takes care of it every week. Well, that's fantastic. And he can come back to me and he can say, dad, so here's, you know, how does it look? Great. So he's gone to that level, but now watch what happens when I take him to outcome level accountability. Now there's, now I'm going to engage with him in a different way. So I'm going to say, Dan, I want you, I want a manicured yard make it happen right so now i my terms of engagement is i'm going to engage with him in terms of outcomes i will only step back down to process project or even to tasks as needed if there's a question or a problem or some kind of challenge or issue then i'll step back down but that's by exception the way that i'm the way that I'm going to engage with him is at outcome level because he, I know that he knows how to do the work at task level and project and process level, right? So, right. but but so what's interesting about this, about this this framework of accountability is that if you ask most people at what level of accountability would you like to be managed, most people will tell you, oh, outcome level. Their hands go their hands go up in the air. Please manage me at outcome level. And then we ask them, why? Why do, we, why do you want to be managed at outcome level? For obvious reasons. They say, because I get to be creative. Right. Because I have autonomy. Because I have independence. So the magic happens when we transfer ownership. And we transfer ownership at outcome level accountability. This is when people do the best work of their lives. And, mm. and, and that's what a lot of people never understand, but that's where the magic happens. And that's the kind, that's what a high performance culture is all about. I, I could not agree with you more. That's, uh, you know, that, that's when I'm working with leaders. That's what I, I tell them is like, look, just define what success looks like and get out of the way. Let them <laughs> do it. Yeah. Uh, you know, cause uh, and, and I'm sure you've ran into it. Uh, you know, 
a lot of times they, they see, well, I delegated authority. I gave them this task list of 352 points of things to do. And, you know, if you're going to micromanage that level, you may as well just do it yourself, right? That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, the, the old patent quote, right, is uh, uh, never tell people what to do. Tell them what needs to, to be done and let them dazzle you with their brilliance. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So, if, no, you are I, mic- if you are micromanaging people, then you, you fundamentally do not understand the concept of leadership because leadership <laughs> is the organizational application of the concept of leverage. Your job is to create leverage. It's to multiply your influence and your impact. You can't do that if you've got people on a short leash. That that you 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 don't get it. And the sad thing is that is when you find and 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 this is sad, uh, I I find it. I, I I as I work with clients, I'll I'll talk to leaders and managers who've been leading and managing for 20 years, 30 years, sometimes 40 years, and they still don't understand the fundamental concept of what they do for a living. Do you see what I'm saying? Because they don't understand that their job is to become a student, an earnest, diligent student of leverage in an organizational sense. And they haven't figured that out. That's a tragedy if you get to the end of your profession and you haven't figured out the fundamental concept of what you do for a living. And yet we see that. We see that a lot, <laughs> a lot. <laughs> a and, lot. and it, you know, and, and I think, you know, uh, your book, Psychological Safety, you know, I think leaders underestimate the psychological impact that has on a workforce, right? Because essentially when you micromanage somebody to that level, you're not saying it with words, but what you're saying to that person is, I can't trust you. You're not smart enough to figure this out. Here, do this. Yeah. And and when people don't feel like they're valued and trusted, they're not going to go that extra mile for you. They're going to do yeah. what you wrote out. You're going to get exactly what your instructions dictated you would get. That's right. Yeah. That's right. In any job, there's a minimum level of effort that you can give from a compliance or that you need to give, right, from a compliance standpoint to basically not get fired. Mm-hmm. So when I was in, when I was a plant manager early in my career in heavy manufacturing, many, many workers, many employees, and even some managers, they had taken that to an art form. They knew how to do that. Right. They would, do just enough not to get fired. Well, beyond that minimum level is what we call discretionary effort. And that's the effort that we control, that we give or withhold in in our jobs and in our efforts. And, And so what we find, and the reason psychological safety is so important is because the way that people interact with us causes us to either freeze or release that discretionary effort that the way that we're treated, the way that we, that others interact with us, it has a profound impact on our behavior and our willingness to want to go the extra miles to your point. Earl. Yeah. No, it's, it's huge. And, and, you know, since we're, we're on it, um, you know, I love the way you broke this down 
in your book and this this kind of four state uh, four stages of psychological safety and and the first one you start with is inclusion safety so you know there's a lot of talk over the last year or two with some of the big incidents that made national attention with uh you know, Starbucks and American Airlines and a few of the other ones uh, over this concept of inclusion, uh, especially when it becomes to to race and, and gender is a big one. But uh, what does inclusion safety mean to you as far as your, your four stages go? And why should leaders care? Sure. Well, let, let me back up just a, one step. Okay. Earl, let me let me define. Let me give all of the listeners out there a basic definition of psychological safety. Psychological safety means that it's not expensive to be yourself. Mm. That's what it means. Mm. It's not socially or emotionally or politically or economically expensive to be yourself. If it is expensive, you're not going to be yourself. Right. You. And, and that's what all of the empirical research is now telling us. Okay, but we had to go further. So the, the purpose of this book was to, to dive into this, to this phenomenon of psychological safety and understand how it works, break it down. And the way that it works is it follows a natural progression that goes from stage to stage. So as you said, the first stage is inclusion safety. Inclusion safety means that you feel part of the team. You feel accepted. You feel that you belong. You are included. This is the first stage of human need in any kind of social unit or social context. Just watch people. Just just whether you're at work, whether you're in the military, whether you're at school, whether you're on a athletic team, whether you're in a civic organization, a church, wherever you are, watch people closely. If someone new comes into the organization, what do they care about? What are they worried about? They're worried about whether they fit in. That's what stage one inclusion safety is all about. It's about fitting in. Now, here's the, the very, very important part of this. Giving inclusion safety to each other is a moral responsibility. Mm. Inclusion safety is not something that you earn. It's something that you are owed. It is a, it is a human right. And why, now why would I say that? Why is it a human right? It's a human right because of this principle. Worth, a person's worth precedes his or her worthiness. Worth comes before worthiness. So what does that mean? That means that if you're human and you're harmless, then I have an obligation. I have a moral obligation to invite you into my society. I I have no grounds, no justification for excluding you. I can't do that. I cannot exclude you based on your race or your gender, your ethnicity or your income or your education or your sexual orientation or whatever. There is no demographic or psychographic characteristic that I can invoke to say, you know what, I don't need to include you. I can't do it. 
because your worth precedes your worthiness, I have a moral obligation to include you. The only ex the only justification for not including is if you present me with a threat of harm. That's it. Yep. So that's inclusion safety. So just so my listeners here <clears throat> are clear, inclusion safety goes above and beyond just, hey, I, I have a diverse workforce. Just having those demographics on your team isn't the same as having an inclusive team, right? Oh, Earl, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. So here's the difference. Diversity is a fact. Inclusion is a choice. Diversity is a matter of composition. You can take any team in the world and there's diversity. Mm -hmm. Now, there may not be diversity in every category, but there will always be some kinds of diversity, diversity, uh, cognitive diversity, diversity in personality, diversity in the way we think. There's always diversity. Diversity is compositional. It's always a fact. Inclusion is a very different thing. Inclusion is behavior. Inclusion is the way that we interact and the way that we treat each other. That's, that's not a matter of composition. That's a matter, matter of human behavior. So inclusion safety means that I need to treat you with, number one, respect. Number two, permission. It's those two things that create psychological safety. So at stage one, it's respect for your human status and it's permission for you to be yourself. So it's behavioral. I, yeah, I, I love that. And one of the things that you point out as, as a key concept here, and I, and I love this, uh, being ignored is often as painful as being rejected. And, uh, you know, uh, you're probably way more qualified to talk about this than, than I am. But it's amazing to me when I introduce the concepts of moral injuries to leaders and the impact that these can actually have on their on their people. So uh, is that something you can expand on a little bit, moral injury? Right. So moral injuries result from often exactly what you're saying, Earl, which is a lack of inclusion safety. These can leave devastating emotional wounds. And um, I you know, I've learned this firsthand as a, as a line manager and leader in my career. And then from a research standpoint, as a researcher. Uh, and, and so we are, if you go back to the burden of command, the burden of command means that you have stewardship for other people. That means, and so let, we're, today we're talking about safety in a holistic sense, mm -hmm. not just physical safety, but we're talking about emotional and right, psychological safety. And, and so we have a, we have a really a responsibility to preserve and protect that. And the most important way that we do that is through our own modeling behavior as a leader, because we set the tone, we establish the vibe. We are the ones that the leader more than any other factor is the, is, is the influence that creates the prevailing norms on a team or in an organization. So one thing that I, I, I'd like to remind leaders of is, look, you're, you're never going to be a neutral actor. 
you're either going to lead the way or you're going to get in the way. So you choose, but you can't be neutral. There's no such thing. By virtue of the fact that you're a leader, you are an actor, you are a player, you have influence. The only question is, what kind of influence will you have? That's right. the only question. Yeah, no, thank you for that. And, and, and you know, what I, I hope, uh, you know, and I really want my listeners to take away from that piece is, is, you know, these injuries, if you let them accumulate, it's just like a bone. You can get a minor fracture to a bone and it's going to be okay. Uh, but if you keep fracturing that bone, it's eventually going to break and in, in a leg or something like that, that ends up looking like a bone sticking through the skin. But in a human being, that ends up looking like somebody committing suicide or, or worse, somebody coming in to the workplace and committing uh, a uh, workplace shooting incident that ends in suicide or capture. And so it is very important that, that leaders hold on to that psychological safety piece and understand this concept of moral injury because, I mean, not being too dramatic about it, it could literally be a life or death event that culminates with this. That's very, that's very true, Earl. Um, we, I, I talk about this in the book pretty extensively, and one of the patterns that, that I talk about is the fact that when people cannot gain acceptance from each other, then a lot of times they will try to get the next best thing, which they think is attention, hmm. right? So if they're not included and they're not accepted, then they will resort to attention. Now that's where we get into trouble because oftentimes they will seek destructive forms of attention instead of positive forms of attention. So this just, this, this really underscores the point that you just made, which is if we can offer genuine acceptance and genuine inclusion safety to each other, they won't feel that need because that need is being met. Mm. No, I, I, I like that. And there's a, uh, you know, there's another great book uh, out there. Uh, the, the title is a little off-putting to most people. I'm not sure if you've, you've read this one or not. Uh, it's by uh, Colonel David Grossman. It's called On Killing. And through the book, he dives into the psychological effects and, and mechanisms that need to be overcome for one human being to be able to kill another human being. And he talks about a lot of these, these, same, uh, these same things, just in a long, uh, much longer, more detailed format than we can get in here on a podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, if, uh, you know, if, if my listeners haven't read that book yet, I highly recommend uh, Dave Grossman's On Killing, and you'll understand exactly what Tim and I are are talking about here. Um, so with that, uh, if you don't mind, let's go ahead and take our listeners to uh, stage two, learner safety. Right. So learner safety is the next stage, stage two, and it means that you feel safe to engage in the learning process, the discovery process. That means that you feel safe to ask questions to give and receive feedback, to experiment, even make mistakes. Now, think about this. So it's one thing to be accepted, no 
okay, that was stage one, to be included and accepted. Stage two means to engage in this learning process. To, to do that requires typically a little, high, a little higher level of psychological safety because your, your level of personal risk and vulnerability has gone up. We all bring, just think about learning, for example, we all bring inhibition, we all bring anxiety to the learning process. If someone, if you have a boss or a colleague or a, a leader or a coach or a teacher or a parent, if someone pushes the fear button while you're trying to learn, what does that do? It sure. triggers what we call the self-censoring instinct. Mm. Every human being has a self-censoring instinct. When we, when we feel fear, when we sense danger, we respond to that. So we will self-censor in a social environment. That means we will retreat. We will become silent. We will withdraw. Now, why are we doing that? What's well, a perfectly natural reaction when there's fear in the organization? So we retreat to manage personal risk, to engage in loss prevention and pain avoidance. That's why we do it. So learning, here's what we know about learning. Learning is both an intellectual and an emotional process. Those two are woven together. Every leader needs to know that. That's why the learning process is delicate. It's sensitive. That's why every 26 seconds, a student drops out of high school in America. Every 26 seconds. Is it because they don't have the intellectual bandwidth to do the work? No, it's because they have been emotionally wounded. The emotional side of learning is bruised. They don't have, they don't feel the support and the encouragement that they need. So you can see that learner safety is that next level that, that allows us to learn in an environment of support and confidence. And and the you know, and again, I, I love that because the I think the other thing that, that leaders fail to comprehend is you essentially get out of your people what you set your expectations for them are. If you give your people this expectation of being able to learn and try and fail and adapt and make adjustments and improve, then you're going to get a lot of motivated, innovative type people. But if you set these expectations that they need to stay in their box, do this this way, failure will not be tolerated, you get a bunch of people who just kind of wither on the vine and you never know what kind of talent you could be missing out on. Well, it's really true. And, and, you just said, <laughs> Earl, a very interesting thing. Uh, uh, mistakes will not be tolerated. Failure will, will not be tolerated. That's a complete self-deception. Anybody that knows anything about human beings and, and human collectives and organizations knows that that's how we learn. That's how we progress. That's how we go forward. Mm -hmm. it's, that's how we do it. There's no other way. So it's a complete fiction to, uh, to, to, to teach an organization that you can't fail or make mistakes. 
in the book, I give a case study on, on uh, about a high school teacher is probably the best high school calculus teacher in all of America. He's incredible. And what he does is he separates, he creates a culture that separates fear from mistakes and failure. By doing that, it, it changes the mindset of the students and they become very aggressive learners and they don't fear mistakes or failure because they know that mistakes are, are not the exception, but they are actually the way forward. And so he's, he's able to transform the learning culture, right? Yeah. Oh, that's huge. That is huge. Um, so how does that, so the next stage is contributor safety. So what is contributor safety and, and how does that apply to the process? So contributor safety is the next natural stage. And for this stage, what this means is that you feel free and able to contribute as a full member of the team using your skills and knowledge and experience to make a difference. And you can see that this is the next natural step because when humans learn something, when, when we learn things, when we learn uh, skills and knowledge and we gain experience, what do we want to do? Well, we naturally want to go use that. We want to go apply that. So that really is the next natural step. We want to contribute. We want to make a difference. So what do we need in order to have contributor safety? We need we need some autonomy. We need some encouragement. We need some guidance. So the the social exchange here is that I will I will provide that for you in exchange for results, in exchange for contribution. So that's what contributor safety is all about. It's about being it being able to go out and give your best and make your biggest and highest contribution uh, wherever you are. And that satisfies the next stage of human need. So if I'm thinking of this as, as an employee, right, we've got somebody who's come on board, uh, we go through <clears> stage <throat> one, they, they actually feel like they're part of a team. They're not being judged for who they are, skin color, sexual orientation, whatever it is. They, they feel comfortable with the organization. Because of that, they're able to you know, kind of learn the ins and outs of what the organization really does specifically in their field. They're able to learn new skill sets uh, that can help uh, the organization out because they feel safe as a learner. And then at the next stage, they're able to take all of that because they feel like they're included, because they've been able to learn and grow their skill set. They've been able to come up with something so they can contribute to the organization. And so maybe they've come up with some great uh, process or, or some great piece of software or some great uh, invention that has helped move the organization forward. But now it's time for stage four. Mm which is challenger safety. Right. And that's a challenger, big one, right? This is a big one. And, and I'm going to tell you and all the listeners out there, this is, <clears throat> this is the ultimate challenge for, for leaders. When it comes to culture, 
this is this 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 is your ultimate challenge. If you can pass this test, then you are world class in my book. Challenger safety is the culminating stage. It means that you can challenge the status quo without fear of embarrassment or marginalization or being punished in some way. You can challenge it without jeopardizing your standing and your reputation. It to challenge the status quo means that you are at the highest level of personal vulnerability. Because after all, you're you're saying, hey, uh, why are we doing this? Or hey, uh, I, I think there's a better way to do this, right? You're, you're challenging, you're holding court on the way we do things. So think about innovation. Innovation by its very nature is disruptive of the status quo. It undermines the status quo. We're gonna we're, we're talking about changing things. We're talking about doing things differently. So, challenger safety is incredibly. It is it is a it is a challenge for leaders to be able to foster and sustain challenger safety. And yet, that's exactly what we need to create organizations that can consistently innovate because challenger safety is essentially a license to innovate. If you have challenger safety, then you have a team that can engage in what we call constructive dissent, right? So think mm-hmm. about what constructive dissent is, or, or we, we also call it creative abrasion. We are engaged in hard hitting dialogue and debate we have ideas that are colliding. We are challenging each other and, and we can handle it. The, the, the culture accommodates it. The leader accommodates it. The leader's not um, retreating to a place of, of self-defensiveness, right? The, leader's not, the, the leader has enough personal security and ego management that he or she can deal with this. So that's what challenger safety is all about. But it's it's not easy to get there and stay there. So so two two points, right? So one, because I don't want my listeners to 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 hear this and think, oh well, I can uh, I safely challenge all the time. This isn't bitching, moaning, groaning, complaining about the process. This is actively trying to improve something for the better, right? That's right. Okay. Yeah this this is not. Um, to have a whining session. This is not to sit sit around and commiserate. This is with the intent to make things better. Now, I'm I'm not I'm also not suggesting that you that everybody has to come to the table with a uh, a fully refined idea or solution. That's not even realistic. Right. Come with your questions. Come with your half baked ideas. Come with your raggedy ideas. It's mm-hmm. fine. We accommodate all of that. That's what it means. But your intent is productive. Right. And then f- for the leaders, I'm glad you mentioned ego, right? Because I can, I can hear a lot of listeners right now be like, oh, well, I want my people to come. I want my people to challenge. I want my people to be innovative. And it's easy to say until it's your idea or your process that they're challenging to try to change. And that's where that ego can trip you up, right? Well, it can. Ego, ego becomes an occupational hazard. 
it gets in your way because what what ego does is ego means that you're worried about yourself and you're being self-serving and the reason that that becomes so dangerous is because that will lead you to become willfully blind mm. and that's so dangerous uh, for any organization or any leader it's not leadership is is not about you right it's it's not about you it's about your stewardship and so if you get wrapped up in ego considerations you're in a dangerous place as a leader you are much more liable to make some errors in judgment because you're not listening you don't have an open mind you don't have an open heart you're not collaborating the way you should be you have blind spots that can really get you into trouble and those blind spots as i said will lead to even more willful blindness now you're in big trouble yeah so uh during our, our workup when i referred to you as dr timothy clark your response was please just call me tim you know as, as somebody uh, i i found that refreshing because you know when it being in, having a military background and, and doing what I do, I run into people with various titles all the time. And, and a lot of people kind of lean on that title a little bit. So to, to hear you, just call me Tim. That, that was nice and refreshing, but I'm just curious, when we were just talking about ego, is that, does that kind of why you would rather just be called Tim instead of Dr. Timothy Clark? Uh, yes. And, but there, it's, it's not just ego. It, it has a, a, a more important purpose than that. Okay. And the, the purpose is that what you're trying to do as a leader is you're trying to create a culturally flat organization. Now, organizationally, it's not going to be flat. You're still going to have a chain of command. You're still going to have a hierarchy. But culturally... The hierarchy can get in, get in the way, because what happens is, as we are working together, as we're collaborating, as we're executing our work, we often defer to title, position, and authority. Well, if we're trying to debate issues on their merits, if we're trying to solve problems, if we're trying to find solutions, it doesn't actually matter what your rank is. It doesn't matter. I don't care if you're a five-star general. I'm agnostic to that. It means nothing. Right. All that matters is the substance of what we are debating and whether we can solve problems. <clears throat> Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense to me. Makes so, for example, um, so for example, when when. Uh, Colin Powell was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Mm -hmm. I remember he was interviewed once. And he would say, when I speak, when I, when I have time with lower-ranking soldiers and I'm able to talk to them, he, says, I, he said, I do everything in my power to convince them that they are speaking with an equal. Well, why, why did he say that? Because he understands the value of trying to create a culturally flat organization. What does he want? He wants 
unvarnished, unedited feedback. He right. wants the highest quality information that he can possibly get. That's what he wants. No, and I love that because if you don't actively do that, human nature, everybody in the room will tend to default to whoever has the most perceived authority or power in the room. And by laying that laying that even, you have a higher likelihood of getting everybody to give you real input. And so I, I love that point. I really love that point. Yeah, see, if, if, if you're, well, think about this. How many leaders do you know, whether in the military or in corporate America or in any other sector, they are hiding behind title, position, and authority. Those are just artifacts right. that the organization gave you. You know, ha- congratulations. But it means nothing when it comes to figuring out solutions to problems. Yep. It, it, you don't get extra points for that. I'm sorry, you just don't. And it's really quite interesting because we work with a lot of technology companies in Silicon Valley. And it's it's really interesting to see how culture is evolving in these places. They're hyper competitive. They don't they don't care what your rank is. It, it, the, these these extremely bright and capable employees, they, they don't care about that. What they care about is can you support them? Can you guide them? Can you encourage them? They don't care about your rank. Right. It doesn't mean anything. Right. In and yeah. of itself, it doesn't mean anything because we have a job to do. So if you can help us do the job, then fantastic. But otherwise, you know, spare me with all that nonsense. <laughs> oh, man. <clears throat> well, you know, Tim, I, I'm looking at the clock here and we, we've, believe it or not, uh, we've been talking about this topic for closing in on, on 55 minutes now. And I feel like we could probably go on for another two or three hours here. We could, uh, couldn't we? <laughs> th- this has been a this has been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed this, and um, you know, and I hate to cut it off here, but uh, you know, I, I, I'd be very open if you'd be interested to in, in having you back in the future as as a guest again. Oh, I'd love to. Thanks very much. Oh, outstanding! And so, before we go, I always like to ask uh, kind of my wrap up question, if you will, and sometimes this leads to more discussion. Is there anything that we didn't get a chance to go over that you'd like to bring up? I would say, well, I'll, I'll just leave a parting thought for all of your listeners. It's a simple thought, but I think it's a powerful thought when it comes to leadership. Lead as if you have no power. Mm. If you can lead with that paradigm, with that mindset, it will help you understand leadership better than you ever have before. I love that. That is that is golden right there. Uh, lead is if you have no power. I like that. Um, so for my listeners who uh, I hope they're as into this conversation as I've been because this has been outstanding. Uh, for my listeners who want to reach out to you, uh, want to pick up a copy of The Four Stages of Psychological Safety, Defining the Path to Inclusion and Innovation, uh, how are some ways that they can, can reach out to you? Well, sure. Um, we'd love to have any of you reach out. Uh, leaderfactor.com is our website. And I'm also active on social media, Timothy R. Clark uh, uh, on LinkedIn and uh, Timothy R. Clark on Twitter. And I'd love to hear from 
anyone. And so feel free to reach out and the book is available at all major booksellers. Okay, fantastic. Um, well, again, thank you very much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Um, and like I said, we'll have to work on getting you back on here because I'd love to open up on some of these things that we were just kind of able to brush up on in this conversation. So thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Earl. It's been a pleasure. All right, listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this discussion with Dr. Timothy Clark. Uh, yeah, I used the title there just to uh, give him his props at the, the closeout. Uh, I'll have all of his contact information in uh, the show notes so you can get a hold of him. Uh, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns for me, burden.command at gmail.com. That's the easiest way to reach me for the podcast, burden.command at gmail.com. Uh, keep rating, reviewing, and sharing the show. We've really uh, started growing, especially since the uh, the Podbean uh, feature there. Uh, we really help, appreciate you helping spread the message and uh, for great guests like Dr. Clark here. Uh, if you have any feedback directly from me, use that same email address. I thank you for your time and sticking with us on this. And I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Electricast.